This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Ron Bombi, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Good to be here, Jer Jeremy. You're in Canada, is that right? Yes, I'm in, in on the west coast of Canada. The province is called British Columbia, and I'm in the interior of British Columbia. So I'm, I'm surrounded by lakes and mountains and snow right now. It's really quite beautiful. So what, what you're telling me is that you're surrounded by global cooling. It's not, it's not warming here right now, no. No, it's, this is, we're experiencing average temperatures. What is, what is your background? My background is uh, in the engineering field. Uh, I have a bachelor's and master's degree in engineering, and I specialized in uh, energy. And my field took me to understand the biosphere of the earth uh, in order to uh, recreate paleoclimates. And so what, what would happen to the earth uh, thousands, if not millions of years ago? So that got me interested in, in, in climate change. And as, a, as an engineer, um, we're all educated in engineering with a very broad background in physics and chemistry and, and all the rules that govern the universe. So I, I have the combination of a, a physics background through engineering, uh, a practical working background through energy and, and a knowledge and an interest in climate change. So I bring all those three together. So what you're telling me is that you don't really know much about climate change. <laughs> I know a little <laughs> bit, yes. <laughs> okay, well, when we talk about climate change, Ron, let's start there. What do we mean by climate change? Well, climate is, is the average of weather over many, many years, decades, if not centuries. So when weather patterns change on a consistent basis, that's, that's climate change. And when weather changes uh, on, on a short-term basis, like just for a year or two, that's just simply weather. So when we talk about climate change, we're talking about how has the weather patterns changed over the last 40 or 50 or even 300, 400 years. So what is meant by the establishment or the media when they talk about climate change? Well, I think the media and the establishment are trying to instill fear about climate change. And I think they bring in any facet that may help promote that fear and that sense of urgency. So they will bring in short-term weather events and claim that's a symptom of climate change, that these things didn't happen in the past and they're happening with more frequency now. But when you look at the, uh, the statistics, the frequency and the severity haven't changed much. So it's just weather patterns. It's not really climate change. Or if it is climate change, it's happening over such a slow period that mankind can adapt to it. What is the source of the temperature? Well, Earth gets almost all of its energy from the sun. And that's just, that's, that's rather obvious, but uh, you, you sort of have to start there with, with the sun. And the sun uh, radiates um, ultraviolet uh, visible light and, and uh, uh, short wavelength infrared radiation that heats up the earth. And Jeremy, I, I, I'd like to go to um, an analogy that, that hopefully most of your listeners have experienced. But if, if you're out camping and you're, you're sleeping in a tent and you get up uh, just at dawn and it's, it's rather chilly and you, you start a fire, to, to warm yourself up you're, and you're waiting for the sun to come over the horizon. Well, you know that if you get closer to the fire, you're going to get warmer. And if you make the fire bigger, you're going to get warmer. So those two things that we should, we should talk about uh, in relationship to the sun. And the third thing is that uh, when the sun does come up over the horizon, you'll be instantly warmed, uh, you know, if you face the sun on, on, on your skin, if there's no clouds and the sun rays can hit you directly and you can feel that warmth right away. But if there's heavy, low clouds uh, where you're camping, you don't feel that sun and you still get chilly. So there's, when there's a barrier between the sun and yourself, that, that uh, interferes with those rays getting to you also. So the first question is, is how do we get closer 
and further away from the sun. Well, the Earth's orbit does that for us. And it's a very slow process, but right now, the Earth's orbit around the sun is almost a perfect circle, not quite. But in about 50,000 years, it's going to be more of an ellipse. And then 50,000 years again, it'll be back to almost a perfect circle. So every 100,000 years, we go from a circle to an ellipse to a circle. And at the ellipse, there will be a point in time when the energy from the earth, or sorry, the energy from the sun that hits the earth will be about 30% less than when we're closest to the sun. So the ellipse does that to us. So when it takes us further away from the sun, the energy that we receive from the sun will be about 30% less. And so that happens every uh, less than when we're at the closest. So that happens about every 100,000 years. Now we know for the last 800,000 years, every 100,000 years, we've had a major glaciation on Earth. The ice caps on the poles began to grow and, and covered most of the North American, sorry, most of the North uh, Hemisphere. So there's there's a direct opposite, and that's called the Milankovitch cycle. And so we get closer and further away from the sun every 100,000 years. Now, of course, that's such a long-term prospect that it doesn't affect human beings you know, in, in, in uh, our recorded history at, at all. But if you're wondering how um, ice ages happen, that's probably it. Now, there's another factor in our orbit that, that, change, that affects the ice ages, and that's the tilt of, of the Earth. And... We can go to a maximum, I think it's about, um, I have to have a look here. We're at about 23 and a half degrees right now, and we can go a tilt from 22 to 24, 24 and a half. And what the tilt does is give us our seasons. Now when the Earth is straighter uh, in its orbit, uh, straighter up and down, it has less tilt, and the, the summer and the winter have less change from uh, temperature wise. And so what that means is we have a little bit warmer winters, but they're still cold enough to snow. And we have a little bit cooler summers. And some of those summers aren't warm enough to melt the snow. So the snow builds up. So those two factors, um, how far we are away from the sun and the tilt of the earth is what gives us ice ages. So that's, that's the equivalent of getting closer or further away from the campfire. And, and when you're further away from the, from the sun, you're gonna have an ice age, uh, or at least we have had one every 100,000 years for the last 800,000 years. Now, the other thing we talked about in, in the analogy is if you make the campfire bigger, then you get warmer. Well, the sun isn't a constant glowing object. It, it goes through cycles where it is more active than um, uh, than normal, and it doesn't change by much. It it only changes by you know one or two percent, but that's enough to affect the temperature of the Earth. Uh, it's been calculated mathematically at about one half degree C. And when the when the sun is more active, we actually see more sunspots on the, on the sun. And uh, during the Little Ice Age, which was, uh, I think, from about 1300 to about 1850, uh, the sun was very inactive. When the sun is inactive, we, we call it a, um, a grand solar minimum. Well, we had four grand solar minimums in a row during the Little Ice Age, and the temperature on Earth was at least a degree cooler than it is uh, today, uh, or, or maybe a degree and a half cooler than it is today. So that's like making the sun uh, they were making the campfire smaller when the sun is inactive. When the sun is active, we see more sunspots. And, and when you have more sunspots, there's more energy directed at the Earth, and the Earth gets a little bit warmer. Now, starting in about uh, 1900, uh, the sun became active. We came, call it a grand solar maximum. And the temperature of the Earth started to warm up and we measured that and and it was it was probably a degree or a degree and a quarter between 1850 and and today part of that is due to the sun um, being more active 
Now, one thing that's kind of interesting, Jeremy, is is that the sun being more active isn't something we've learned recently. If you go back to the 1750s, and 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 you, if you've ever wondered, I don't know, in South Africa, do you uh, have a, a book called the Farmer's Almanac that farmers use to decide? to predict what the weather is going to be. It became popular in the, in the 1800s and the 1900s before modern meteorology got so so good. And one of the factors they look at in the farmer's almanac is sunspots. And so if, if they saw a lot of sunspots, then they predicted that the weather's going to be warmer and they're going to have better crop yields. And it was, it was reasonably uh, um, well received that it became a very, very popular book. So anyway, the, 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 the activity of the sun is like building a bigger campfire. It'll warm you up. But the main reason that the activity of the sun changes the temperature of the earth is because of cloud formation. And just like when you wake up on a camping trip and it's very cloudy and, and it's a low dense cloud, the sun doesn't warm you up. Uh, when there's low dense clouds all over the earth or a great part of the earth, the earth doesn't warm up as much. Those clouds reflect sunlight back into space and it doesn't get to the surface of the earth to, to, to warm us up. Now, when the sun is less active, it has a weaker magnetic field and a weaker magnetic field allows more um, uh, uh, cosmic rays that come from supernova stars to hit the surface of the atmosphere of the earth. They ionize particles in the atmosphere, and those ionization become nucleus of clouds. Um, the the the, uh, the gamma ray or the sorry the, the cosmic rays knock off electrons on particles, and uh, that are floating in the air, and then uh, water molecules attach themselves to it, and they grow and they grow and they grow and they become clouds. When the when the sun is very active, it has a stronger magnetic field and it shields us from those cosmic rays. So during the little ice ages, sorry, during the little ice age, it was probable that it was a cloudier period because the sun was weaker and more sunlight got reflected back into space and the earth was cooler. Then in the modern uh, uh, solar maximum starting in about 1900, the sunspots picked up, the sun was more active, it had a stronger mag magnetic field it shielded us from these galactic cosmic rays and less clouds formed. So more energy got to the sur surface of the earth and the earth warmed up. So those, those two things, uh, sorry, those three things um, affect uh, climate. The, the, uh, the first two are in a long period of time. The, the orbit of the earth as, as an ellipse puts us into ice ages. Uh, and the tilt puts us into ice ages about every 100,000 years. The tilt of the Earth, that, that's about a 40,000 year cycle. And that can help put us into ice ages or not, uh, because it, it, it changes the contrast between winter and summer. If there's a large contrast, we won't have an ice age. If there's a small contrast, we could have an ice age. And the last one is is the size of the campfire, which is is the sorry the, the last one is is the um, yeah the size of the campfire, which does affect the amount of energy it gives off, but more importantly, it affects how much cloud there is in the atmosphere on Earth. And the more clouds we have, the cooler the cooler it is. So all the, the, those factors, Jeremy, are all not related to carbon dioxide and not related to greenhouse gases, but they are a way that climate change occurs naturally on earth we keep getting told in the establishment that you and i ron you and i are causing earth to warm by driving our car and turning on our light bulbs yes and and that that gets to the greenhouse gas effect and so that is separate from from the the energy from the sun that i, that I just described and so the greenhouse gas effect is a more uh, immediate um, thing that can that can affect the climate within certain limits, and that it it, uh, it can occur with within it within a human lifetime, and, and it has occurred within a human lifetime. And so, the way, if if you think about uh, the moon, 
and, and the moon gets the same amount of sunlight as we get and there's no atmosphere. And the moon, if you took the dark side and the light side and averaged the temperature, it would be about minus 18 degrees C, so very cold. The, the, the Earth, which has an atmosphere, has an average temperature of about 15 degrees C. And the difference between the Earth and the moon is we have an atmosphere and our atmosphere contains greenhouse gases. Now, I mentioned earlier that the sun uh, sends us this energy in, in terms of ultraviolet light, uh, visible light, and very short wave infrared light, or sorry, infrared uh, radiation that hits the oceans and hits the land and, and warms them up. And then the, 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 that energy is released, 70% of it is released with uh, water vapor being evaporated and, and going up in uh, thermal currents, like a thunderhead cloud. About 30% of the energy from the sun that warms up the oceans and the earth gets released in longer wave infrared radiation. Uh, about half of that escapes right to, right to space, but the other half is, is eligible to be absorbed by greenhouse gases. Now, about 95% of the greenhouse gas effect is from water vapor. And so water vapor can capture this uh, infrared radiation, absorb it, and re-release it. And it's that it, when it releases it, some of it comes back to the surface of the earth. That, that radiation warms up the surface of the earth again, and then it gets released again. So it gets cycled around from the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere back to the earth, and then back to the greenhouse gases. That recycling of energy, Jeremy, is about two and a half times the amount of energy that we receive from the sun every day. And we don't build up more energy. It, it's a system in equilibrium. The amount of energy we really, we, um, that we send back to space every day is roughly equivalent to the amount of energy that we receive. It's the recycled energy by the greenhouse gas effect that keeps us warm. Now, after water vapor, the next big, big greenhouse gas is carbon dioxide. And so you can argue somewhere between two to four, maybe even 5% of the greenhouse gas effect is from carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide can absorb infrared radiation in a specific uh, wavelength. And so it absorbs it and, and uh, uh, it kind of stores it like a spring and about a second later, uh, the CO2 molecule releases this infrared radiation. And because the molecule is spinning in the atmosphere, it can go in all directions. Some of that will go back to the earth. Some of that will uh, go up into uh, outer space, um, but that's its contribution to the greenhouse gas effect. Now, the other thing that happens is that I said it took a second for the CO2 molecule to release that energy. It's bouncing around in the atmosphere and it's hitting oxygen atoms and it's hitting nitrogen atoms. And it's transferring that energy to those molecules. Well, those molecules don't have the ability to release that energy. It just heats them up and they get taken up. Uh, as they heat up, they, they contribute to more convection currents. So more energy is, is, is lost to, to, to space. So the concern is, is that mankind has put quite a bit of CO2 into the atmosphere, much more than would occur naturally. And by putting that CO2 into the atmosphere, we are, we are creating more of the greenhouse gas effect. Well, that is only true to a very limited degree. And that's because the relationship between the, the greenhouse gas effect and the concentration of carbon dioxide follows what's mathematically known as a logarithmic progression. And so let's say that, that uh, uh, here in British Columbia, where, where I live, um, the, the uh, indigenous people uh, fish with fish weirs. And so there's a lot of salmon in the area. They start in the ocean and they swim upriver to their spawning grounds. So they're only going in one direction. And what the fishermen do is they will, they will place a weir across a part of the river and the fish will get caught in that weir. Um, 
the first fisherman, let's say he catches 10 fish in a day. And so his friends see this and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to, it's a good place to fish. The fish are running. I'll go upstream and his two buddies each put in a weir. Well, combined, they only catch 10 fish. The first guy caught 10 by himself and the next two each got five. But still, they're happy because it doesn't take much work. Uh, they just build their weir. So four more guys come and they build, four more fishermen come and they build four more fish weirs upstream of, of all the other weirs. And those, those four combined only catch 10 fish in a day. So what's happened is each time you want to catch the same amount of fish, you have to double the amount of weirs. So when you have seven fish weirs in there, you don't get 70 fish. You only get 30 fish. And if you had 14 fish weirs in there, you're only going to get 40 fish. So it's a rapidly diminishing amount of fish you catch. Carbon dioxide works the same. If there's no carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and you put a little bit in, it's going to trap a lot of heat. It's going to recycle that heat. But as you put more and more carbon dioxide in, it has less and less effect to the point where it's almost almost uh, imperceivable. And the concentration that we're in right now, Jeremy, we're in that area where more carbon dioxide makes probably no difference whatsoever to global warming. If human beings did cause global warming in the last century, when we went from just under 300 parts per million to today's just over 400 parts per million, that's done with now. Adding more carbon dioxide isn't going to appreciably affect global warming. And the reason because is, is because of the logarithmic effect that I just described. If, let's say for example, all the carbon dioxide that we put in the air from the start of the industrial revolution till today, let's say that raised the temperature by one degree C, just to keep things simple. So to get the next one degree C warming, we don't have to put in the same amount of carbon dioxide, we have to double it, twice as much as we put in in the last 150 years. And then if you want to raise it a third one degree C, then you have to put in four times more for a total of seven. So you can see it drops off rapidly. And the other thing gets back to these collisions that, that, the, um, that the molecule, the carbon dioxide molecule has with other, other atmospheres, or sorry, other molecules in the atmosphere. If it, it, it has, it will make about a billion collisions with other molecules before it releases that energy. And so it's gonna lose a lot of that energy that's gonna to go to convection currents. And those convection currents are gonna carry the heat up to the upper atmosphere where it gets radiated to space. So it's like a, a, a self-correcting um, uh, issue. And so there, there, there's no tipping point, as the media would like to tell you, where we get to a critical carbon dioxide concentration and then and then everything is going to just shoot up rapidly so the, the 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 amount of carbon dioxide that we're at right now about 420 parts per million is probably not contributing to global warming at all and if if you look at um, satellite data that we get um, since about 1979 the earth isn't uh, the, the global average temperature is no higher today than it was in 1998, despite putting at least 10%, maybe 13% more carbon dioxide in the air. In fact, you, you could look at the data collected by satellites and, and you, could, you could say that actually there might be a little bit of a decrease in, in the temperature, a little bit of a cooling trend. Now, that's not long enough to be established yet, but global warming certainly isn't going up at the rate that was projected by the IPCC. Now, the thing about the satellite temperatures, which the IPCC doesn't use, is they're collected by basically the same instruments on the same satellites that get about 100%, almost 100% coverage of the Earth. And so there's very little room for, for error in, in terms of correcting who has the right thermostat which one is being affected by the urban heat island effect, which is you know where cities and asphalt and everything cause, cause a false warming. The, the satellite data is, is actually the best data that we have, and it's only available from 1979 on, but it basically shows 
low warming. There's another system that was set up in the United States and it's only about 18 years old. And uh, it was set up in pristine locations for the, for the express purpose of detecting is the climate changing. And in the 18 years that, that these are triple redundant state of the art um, uh, temperature sensing mechanisms that are put in locations where they're not affected by mankind. And the 18 years that they've been there, they actually show a very slight cooling trend, not a warming trend. So it kind of all fits together that adding more carbon dioxide in, in now in, in 2023 isn't really going to affect global warming by the greenhouse gas effect. Is Earth actually warming? And by extension, how do they measure that, Ron? Well, yes, the Earth ha has been warming. When we look at, we have we have some temperature records from you know the mid eighteen hundred or sorry eighteen fifty onwards. Most of those temperature records are are heavily influenced by European shipping around the world, and and uh, most of them are 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 uh, taken from from water, and and some of them are from land. Uh, they're very very prone to error, but it's it's basically what we have. And from eighteen fifty until now. It probably has warmed up by at least a degree and maybe 1.3 degrees. But you have to also remember that 1850, is, uh, according to the Greenland ice cores, was the coldest year uh, in the Little Ice Age. So when the Little Ice Age ended, it had to warm up. And the reason the Little Ice Age ended is because we went from a grand solar minimum, which is the small sun, the weaker sun, and, and more cloudy to the grand solar maximum of the 20th century, which is a stronger sun, stronger magnetic field, and less clouds. So some of the warming that we have seen has to be attributed to changes in the sun. How, how do they measure the average temperature across Earth? Well, the IPCC uh, uses measurements uh, from, from ships, and, and they use measurements from their, their land-based uh, network. And they, they, are, they have to be corrected for the type of thermometer it is, uh, where they were placed, has the urban heat island effect uh, uh, caused the temperature to rise uh, quite a bit. So uh, it, it's a very complicated thing. They put these temperatures into a grid, and then mathematically, they average the temperatures and they, they try to knock out the ones that are, are uh, obviously too high or been affected by, by, by something. They're, they are um, they are susceptible to statistical manipulation to get an average temperature. Whereas the satellite temperatures, it's just simply the reading on the satellites. And, and it, it, it's not statistically manipulated to get rid of the bumps and everything else. So the terrestrial and the marine collection of temperature data is, is very complicated uh, and it is not very accurate. The satellite based is very accurate and very uncomplicated. So it's, pre it's preferable to go with the satellite data. Now, the, the other thing too, uh, Jeremy, you asked, you know, how do we know that it gets warmer or not? Mm. Well, we don't have to actually restrict ourselves just to thermometer data. Um, because we, we've had written human records for 5,000 years. And, and we know archaeology goes back to uh, you know, 10,000 years at least to the last little ice age. And we can tell how, by the way people lived and where they traveled and what they did and what they grew for crops, what the temperature was. And we can also see by um, plants that once grew in high latitudes uh, that don't grow there anymore, that the temperature was warmer and, and, and now it's cooler. Uh, we do have the Greenland and, and the uh, Antarctic ice cores, which give us a very good temperature record going back, uh, you know, many, many thousands of years. So what we can do is we can look at a Greenland ice core and it could say, uh, you know, we, we can tell from the, the isotopes in this, in this uh, ice core that the year 1200 was uh, still very warm. 
but that's only in Greenland and only at that one spot. But then if you look at, well, the, the, uh, the, the uh, English are growing grapes in England and the Germans are growing olives in the Rhine and the Vikings uh, have discovered Canada and there's grapes growing wild there and they've colonized Greenland, which is now pretty much ice covered, that, that the, the warming trend that was detected in the Greenland ice cores is detectable by other methods all around the world. So we know there's been periods of time uh, in, in, in the last 10,000 years that it's been much warmer than today. In, in fact, when you look at the Greenland ice cores, ice cores by themselves, 95% of human history uh, in the last 10,000 years were warmer than today. So we have adapted extremely well with much more primitive technology than we have today. And these fluctuations are quite normal. Now, there, there, is, um, there, there is probably some part of that 1 to 1.3 degree uh, temperature increase in the last 150 years that was caused by humans, that was caused by us putting carbon dioxide in the air. We don't know how much it is. I don't know if anyone will ever figure it out. But the important thing is more copper dioxide isn't going to cause more warming. Mm. So there's there's no reason to shut down our hydrocarbon-based economy uh, solely to get rid of CO2. There's just no justification of that. I'm a guy, right, Ron, and so are you. I like my wife wearing less clothing. Why is Why is warming such a bad thing uh it's 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 not a bad thing if if you look at uh kind of the time periods i just talked about um when when the uh when the roman warming period uh ended and uh it got cooler um something really nasty happened uh and i'm i'm i'm, I'm hoping i get all my all my dates right but uh, let, no, let's, let's go back to the Little Ice Ages, okay, from 1300 to, to 1850. Okay, so um, when it got colder, there was crop failures, there was famine, uh, mm. European populations weren't as healthy, and uh, uh, they were susceptible to a disease called the Black Plague. And, and perhaps the Black Plague was more effective because people were hungry. And so colder weather has always been associated with lower living standards um, uh, in, 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 in what we know of in Europeans. And when we look at other dynasties around the world in South America and in China uh, and, and in the Middle East, uh, their best years were warm years and their worst years and their, and their failures were, were, were cold years. So uh, warm uh, and lush and green is better than cold and dry and dead. That's, that's for sure. Uh, we, we've seen the greening of the earth in the last few decades because of more CO2 in the air, and it's a little bit warmer too. So they kind of work hand in hand. More CO2 lets plants more efficiently use water, and, and, and more sunlight is more energy for, for the plants to, plants to grow. So there's, there's no real downside to uh, slightly warmer temperatures on earth. Now, the other thing that, that we should get into a little bit, uh, Jeremy, is, is there's been multicellular life on Earth for over half a billion years. And we've had CO2 concentrations in that period of time up to 12 times higher than they are today. And we have never, ever had runaway global warming. It just hasn't happened. And we've had periods when uh, over that 500 million years, when the CO2 level has dropped dramatically and the temperature hasn't changed. We've had it when the CO2 has dropped dramatically and the temperature dropped. We've had it when the CO2 climbed dramatically and the temperature didn't change. And we've had CO2 climb dramatically and the temperature actually dropped. So when you go from extremes of CO2 concentration from a low of about 300 parts per million up to a maximum that we know of of 5,000 parts per million, there is no correlation whatsoever between CO2 concentration and global temperatures. Sometimes they go in the same direction. Sometimes they go in opposite direction. Sometimes one moves and the other doesn't. So that tells you there 
that um, there is no tipping point with CO2. CO2 is, is, not, is not the thermostat on the earth. At most, it's, it, it fine tunes the earth. Uh, let me go back to my, um, my fish weir analogy, Jeremy. So what's, what's actually happening is, is the, the, the fishermen that get there too late and they add more and more fish weirs, it, it's not because the efficiency of their fish weir is dropping, it's because the river is running out of fish. CO2 can only capture infrared radiation between 14 microns and 16 and a half microns. So a human hair is about 100 microns. And so that gives you an idea how, how small it is. And what's happening is that the amount of energy that comes off the surface of the earth in that band of infrared radiation is limited. And so when you add more and more CO2, it can't catch it because there's none left to catch or it's running out of that is running out of fish, basically. 97% of scientists agree that humans are the cause of global warming. Well, that's not true. And, and that is something that um, uh, was perpetuated by uh, two very famous men. And it was based on studies that were very inaccurate and, and uh, misleading. And the first one was Al Gore, and it was in his, uh, his movie, An Inconvenient Truth. And he seems to be referring to a study that uh, of 948 um, papers uh, that the authors uh, all said that mankind is contributing. They, they agreed with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change position that the uh, uh, these scientists agreed that CO2 was causing global warming and human activity was, was, was more, than, more than half of it. Well, it, it turns out that that study uh, was only the abstract of the papers. And in that study, um, not many of them actually came out and said, yes, we agree that humans are contributing to at least half. Now, Al Gore, in his movie, he, he said, the 948 was only 10% of the papers. So he immediately went up by 10. And these, these papers were, were taken off the internet just by doing a research on, on they just write global warming. And, and so they, they get all these papers and they read the abstracts and they say, this guy agrees, this guy doesn't. Well, it's all very subjective. Um, the, the papers were not actually ever read and, and scientists never actually um, signed up and said, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with this. The next one, of course, was, was uh, Barack Obama. And uh, he, he, he made public a study that was much larger in scope. And, and he said 97% of scientists agree. And then when you, when you look at the actual study that, that he was referring to, of the, I think it was uh, 12,000 or so papers, uh, only about half of them had expressed an opinion. And again, it was just the abstract. And those opinions uh, didn't necessarily say they agree. And there, there was a, a fellow who, who looked at the, at the Obama case and uh, read each paper and, and tried to decide, not from a subjective point of view, but from an objective point of view, whether they explicitly expressed that they agreed with the IPCC. And only about 1% agreed and about 1.5% disagreed. But again, it was, it was an attempt uh, using uh, uh, just kind of an internet search and reading only the abstracts to subjectively put scientists in, into one of two categories. Now there's been other things like the Oregon petition where, where, where many thousands of scientists uh, in the United States um, signed their names and said, don't sign the Kyoto Accord, we think it's wrong. And there's, there's groups like I belong to, the CO2 uh, uh, Coalition and the Clintel Group, where scientists actually publicly state their name and say, we don't disagree with it. So one is a, an anonymous survey on the internet that was blown out of proportion, but was, was, was uh, advertised quite well by two very prominent men. And on the other side, there are scientists that risk their career and risk their reputation by publicly stating um, uh, 
what's going on, uh, what the IPCC claims isn't, isn't correct. The thing that, that I, I get a lot of satisfaction from is a lot of my colleagues, both in the Clintel group and in, in the CO2 coalition, used to be associated with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And so they're kind of like whistleblowers and they can see things things aren't great there, that the science uh, is, is not true science, it's, it's been politicized. So the, I, 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 I like to use as an example, uh, a place that, I, that I, I worked in part of my career was in Turkmenistan. And I was there during an election and, and uh, they, they had a new president and uh, he was elected by 97% of the electorate. And uh, uh, as you know, Turkmenistan is a very Stalinist regime. And it, it amazed me that, that the, the Western press denounced the 97% victory by the president of Turkmenistan as being a sham and a fraud and how can you justify that? But they never questioned the 97% of scientists that agree with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's just two different standards. Even if, as a thought experiment, 97% did agree, I've always understood science not to be by consensus. It's not about how many scientists agree on something, surely? That's absolutely correct. And, and if you think what uh, Galileo, Galileo went through, when, when, uh, when he started codifying science, as this is, and Galileo Galileo developed what we now call the scientific method, and it's based on observation. He was the first one to do it, and uh, he was he was a lone voice, and uh, you know he was persecuted for it, but he was the first one. Uh, there's a famous quote, and I'm paraphrasing here. Um, uh, uh, um, from Einstein, sorry, I had a little mental blip there from, from Albert Einstein. And, and uh, of course, his, his calculations back in, in, in 1912 and 1915 on the general theory of relativity, people said, well, this can't be true and no one agrees with you. And, and his response was, um, it only takes one person to prove that I'm wrong. Show me that person. And of course, no one could and he turned out to be right. So you're absolutely correct, Jeremy. Science progresses by observation and by challenging pre-existing thoughts. It doesn't progress by groupthink or by consensus. And that's exactly what's wrong with the Intergovernmental Panel on mm. Climate Change. Their summer reports aren't written by the scientists that they select to do the work. Their summer reports are written by diplomats who have to appease their own governments and they have to come up with a document that reflects their own government's opinion. And so it's not science whatsoever. Mm. It's, it's, uh, it's consensus. It's political consensus. So, I mean, what I'm trying to say is even if, even if 97% said something, I actually still want to go and read what the 3% say. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. But Ron, okay, please explain to me why then is CO2 the, the bogeyman? Why does everybody hate carbon dioxide? Can I just quickly give an anecdote? My understanding, and I'm, I'm obviously not a scientist and I'm not a farmer, but a greenhouse flourishes when farmers pump CO2 in. If they stopped pumping CO2 into their greenhouses, everything will die. What am I missing? Well... CO2 is, is, is a byproduct of fossil fuels, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something we can't easily eliminate from the burning of fossil fuels. And the fossil fuel industry, coal, oil and gas, um, are, are probably the biggest uh, uh, global industry there is. And uh, I'm not here to defend them. Uh, they, they've They've probably made many mistakes, and and they've probably been involved in in the environmental degradation. But after after the nuclear industry was uh, damaged significantly by environmentalists, you know, the, the for for fear of nuclear accidents and proliferation of of, wedding, of, of weapons, they turned their sights on the hydrocarbon industry, and and they wanted to reduce their footprint to zero, and they they view the fossil fuel industry as, as bad. Now, the upside of the fossil fuel industry 
is that it has lifted or has helped lift billions of people out of poverty. And, and, and it's because energy is the equivalent of work. Um, what, what we can provide with, with natural gas and with coal used to be done by, by human beings with, with arms and backs. And, and so energy is work. And that's how we lifted people out of poverty. Environmentalists want to shut down, I believe, the fossil fuel industry the same way they shut down the nuclear industry. And the easiest way to do that is to attack carbon dioxide. And uh, because we, we have, it's very expensive to, to get rid of it. Uh, uh, every time you burn a fossil fuel, carbon dioxide is, is going to be produced. But carbon dioxide uh, does affect um, crop yields, and they have gone up significantly in, in, in the last few decades. Uh, um, carbon dioxide is not a pollutant that harms human health. Uh, we have submariners that live in that environment, um, and, and, they're, and they're not damaged by it. If, if you, uh, Jeremy, if, if you walked from, from the street in, in, uh, uh, in Cape Town and went into a large office building, the carbon dioxide that you breathe in once you're inside the office building is probably triple what it was outside. So carbon dioxide is not a pollutant and it doesn't harm human health and it promotes plant growth. So there's a lot of benefits to carbon dioxide. I, I think the, um, the fight against carbon dioxide uh, is, is against the fossil fuel industry. Uh, the, the motivation uh, against it, there's, there's kind of two extremes. And one thing that is often overlooked is, is one of the, 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 the proponents of the Kyoto Accord and the proponents of, um, I shouldn't say the Kyoto Accord, the proponents of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that made it happen was Margaret Thatcher. And Margaret Thatcher, uh, very successful prime minister, um, very successful lawyer, uh, people don't realize this, but she was she was also an Oxford-trained research chemist. So she knew the, uh, the scientific method. So she was concerned about carbon dioxide going in the air, and she helped create the IPCC, and she uh, gave the um, uh, all the records that the British government had from their, their, their trade routes around the world to reconstruct the temperature. So she was a, a, a big push to, to get it going. And after their first reports came out um, in her book, uh, Statecraft, which was published in two, 2012, she said there was madness in their method. And, and she said it was nothing but a socialist plot to govern mm. the world. And so she went from being a, almost a founder of it to its worst critic. And it's because she was at heart a scientist mm. and she could see where they were making mistakes. Now, uh, so her, her view that it was a, a socialist plot. Uh, there was an interesting documentary made by Michael Moore a couple years ago, Planet of the Humans. And he was, he was showing all these subsidies of government money in the United States that was going to ridiculous product, projects to replace fossil fuels. And people were getting rich by this. And, and the way they were getting rich is they would shut down a nuclear plant or shut down a coal plant they would bring in these, these huge solar and wind uh, installations. They would fail, and so they would need a backup from natural gas. And who was supplying the natural gas? Well, it was, it was people that, that owned natural gas companies. So Michael Moore, his, his position was that it was a capitalist plot to take over the economy. Uh, you know, different people, they wanted to change. So I, I can't tell you whether it was a socialist plot or a capitalist plot, but it's definitely an unscientific plot. It's a political plot. <laughs> the Arctic, the Antarctic ice, uh, sea levels and extreme weather. What is going on? Well, those are things that, that, that change naturally and change in cycles. And, and we don't really understand how. And um, uh, none of them, uh, when you look at the statistics, none of them have changed their trends over our lifetimes or over the last, uh, as far back as, as we can look. Um, the Arctic ice, of course, being from Canada, that's, that's something that, that we're always uh, involved with or, or concerned about. And there was a period of time that it, it shrunk dramatically. 
and now it's it's growing again. And what people do uh, is is they 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 very selectively uh, pick the period of time that they want to look at, uh, and and they say, okay, the Arctic ice is shrinking. But if they went to the period before that, they would see that it was growing. Now. One thing that people seem to have forgotten about is that during World War II, um, uh, the the German Navy actually, when, when they were still uh, allied with, with Stalin's Russia, they sent ships uh, through the Arctic that came out in the Bering Strait. And these were armed merchant ships that they sent in the Pacific to, to harass allies. Well, 40 years after that, you couldn't do that because the ice had grown. And now it's probably back to the point where you could do it. And, in, and, and for the last 10 years, the Arctic uh, coverage has, has been growing again in northern Canada. So it, it, it's a cycle that we, we don't understand um, or we don't completely understand. Uh, the, the, the trends of extreme weather, um, the, there was a, a, an Italian paper that came out by a fellow named uh, uh, Dr. Alamonti. And he looked at all the data that he could get his hands on, and a lot of it was the same data that the IPCC uses. And he saw no trends in hurricanes, in cyclones, in droughts, in floods. Um, forest fires are actually way, way down uh, in, in 100 years be because we put so many of them out so, so, so quickly. So uh, extreme weather really hasn't changed. Our ability to know about it and the damage that it causes have gone up because uh, we're building so many things on the coast. The other interesting thing, and 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 uh, I think it's it's Lomberg that pointed it out. Um, I'm not sure, but the the deaths from extreme weather has plummeted by 99 percent in the last couple hundred years because we we have the technology to survive them now. So a, a lot of those things, uh, Jeremy, I, I'm going to speculate a little here, because because the the satellite data. And, and because the specific ground-based data in the United States to detect global warming are showing that global warming really isn't happening, I, I think the, the global warmers need something else to point out that, that we still need to destroy uh, anything that's creating carbon dioxide. And maybe the temperature isn't going up, but the weather's getting wild. Well, no, the weather's not getting wild. The weather is the same as it always has, has been. The other thing about wild weather as we started the conversation off, weather isn't climate. You have to have a change in weather patterns for a significant period of time to show that it has been a climatic change. And we haven't seen that. Uh, Almonte's paper uh, points that out. Is it fair to say, though, that the weather patterns do change? My mother or my father might say, for example, you know, when I was a kid, I don't remember it being hot at this time of the year. It seems to have shifted. Mm-hmm. I, I think they, they do change, um, but how much do they change and, and do they change in cycles? And, and uh, again, it gets back to uh, when, when your parents were kids, we could have been at the height of the last grand solar maximum. So it, it, it could have been hotter then. Or uh, in case of my dad, uh, uh, it was, it was, uh, <laughs> he's 94 years old. So uh, uh, he, he saw some cooler times too. You know, be, uh, just at, at the beginning of, of the Grand Solar Maximum. Uh, so, Ron, hold on, hold on, hold yeah. on, hold on. I can't let you go on. What is his secret? Ninety-four. Ninety-four. Um, the secret is, I, I think he picked his parents very well, and <laughs> and uh, I'm I, I'm hoping the same uh, ha happens to me. Uh, but no. Uh, my dad's just a farm boy that worked hard all his life and and he was healthy all his life cows cows <laughs> are also the enemy <laughs> yes yeah well uh, cows cows gets back to what we we're just talking about is is uh if if your main if, if you've been telling people for 30 or 40 years that the temperature is going to climb three or four degrees by 2100 and it's going to you know we're going to be living in a hothouse and the trends say that's not true, then you need something else to attack. And methane is a more powerful greenhouse gas by a factor of about 80 than carbon dioxide. And it works similar to carbon dioxide. It has the same logarithmic progression that you have to keep 
doubling the amount of uh, methane to get the same temperature increase. The problem is that there's hardly any methane in the atmosphere at all. Uh, if there's 420 parts per million carbon dioxide, I think it's only 1.8 parts per million methane. And methane is growing very, very slowly in the atmosphere. So the, the calculations are that if, if we wanted to raise the temperature of the earth by the greenhouse gas effect of methane only, it would take about uh, one degree C, it would take about 1500 years. So what, what the global warmists are saying is, yes, it's much more powerful. And so we should be afraid of it. But the reality is there's not many of them. So you don't really have to be afraid of it. And the analogy I, I, I like to use is, is if you're from a very small country and you have a very efficient army that's well-equipped and well-trained and, and uh, say, you know, in, in India, it's, it's uh, the, the, the Gurkhas, you know, everyone who was afraid of the Gurkhas, even in the, in the Falkland Islands. Well, the Gurkhas aren't going to overtake China. I mean, because China has a as an army of five million people, and the Gurkhas, a few hundred thousand people. So it's they may be more powerful on an individual basis, but there's not many of them. So they're 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 not going to take over the world. It's the same with methane. There there's just uh, so little methane in the air, and we're producing it so slowly. It's never going to be a factor. When a volcano erupts. Does it have a big impact on Earth? Well, yes, yes, it does, but for a number of reasons. And and uh, uh, when a volcano erupts, there's going to be a lot of ash, and there's going to be a lot of uh, sulfur dioxide that goes in the air. And so I'm I'm trying to think of um, there there was uh, I can't remember the name of the volcano. It was an Indonesian volcano that it was in the 1850s. It, it erupted and it was called the Year Without a Summer, and and it was it was because of uh, the ash in the air, and and the sulfur dioxide in the air reflected back a lot of the sunlight. In terms of carbon dioxide, we don't really know how much volcanoes contribute to carbon dioxide because somewhere between 80 and 85 percent of volcanoes are under the water or under ice. So we don't know how often they they erupt. We don't know how much they, they put out. We, we can make those estimates for terrestrial volcanoes, but all carbon dioxide in our atmosphere originated from a volcano at some point. And so, yes, they're, they're, they're a big factor. Um, are volcanic eruptions affecting carbon dioxide right now? Well, I, I know Dr. Plymer in Australia likes to point out that uh, one single eruption in Mount Pinatubo um, negated all of the carbon dioxide that you tried to save by going green. And so it was just wiped out, you know. So um, carbon or volcanoes could be considered a, a reminder of, of uh, how futile it is to control how much CO2 there is in the atmosphere. Whenever a conversation about um, global warming comes up, you will hear about Michael Mann's hockey stick. Yes. Yes. Um, that is sort of the uh, a, a real seminal moment because um, when he came up with his hockey stick, um, the the first IPCC report that um, uh, came out after it, I think it used that that graph six times, and uh, then Al Gore put it into his his movie, An Inconvenient Truth, and it got widely widely publicized, and. Uh, where the hockey stick falls down, there's there there, there I, I, there's more than one, but uh, one of them is is that a lot of the ancient climates, uh, and by ancient in in the hockey stick graph, it's a thousand years ago, were determined by tree ring data, and the tree ring data that Michael Mann used was predominantly um, uh, pine trees in Northern California that grow at a at a very uh, 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 high elevation. And what was misleading about those tree rings is that a good growth year, um, in, in a normal tree ring, a good growth year would be indicative of warmer temperatures. Uh, because of these bristlecone pine trees growing at high elevation, they were kind of struggling for life anyway. And when the CO2 level went up, that was like putting them in a greenhouse and they grew rapidly. And so the tree ring data that he used 
was uh, inaccurate and misleading. And, and there was a lot of controversy uh, about that. The, the, the second issue that's wrong with the, the hockey stick graph is, is that uh, there, was, there was two researchers in Canada who, who um, uh, looked at the data and Michael Mann wasn't forthcoming with his data right away, um, uh, but he had to release it because part of it was funded by the American government. And uh, I think it was, uh, I'm not going to guess at their names because I'll, I'll get them wrong. But anyway, uh, one of them, uh, I think it was Ross McKittrick, um, testified in front of the House of Commons, uh, uh, the, sorry, the United Kingdom House of Lords, that he took he took the model that Michael Mann used to predict this hockey stick, and he threw in random data, and he still got a hockey stick. So the the the, the computer model was wrong, and and the uh, United States House of Representatives had two investigations into it and they came back and they said the statistical methodology that went into the hockey stick graph was wrong. So that's 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 two things. Uh, one was the, the bristlecone pine is not a good proxy for temperatures. The second thing is that his statistics were wrong and they could produce, his model could produce a hockey stick graph with random data. But the third thing is that we know from all other sciences combined that there was a Roman warming period when it was about a degree warmer than today. There was a little ice age that was about a degree cooler than today. And the hockey stick graph eliminated that warming and cooling. So the, the hockey stick graph said that uh, 1998 was the, uh, or 1996 was the warmest year in, in a thousand years. And it simply wasn't uh, be, because we know uh, the, uh, because of the Roman warming period and the little ice ages. And uh, so the hockey stick graph disappeared from the IPCC um, uh, publications. They don't use it anymore. But the mentality of it, Jeremy, is still there, that, that the Earth's temperature is a static thing, that it never changes. And when you add CO2, it skyrockets. That fits their mentality. That's what they're trying to say but it's, it's simply not true. The Earth's temperature goes up and down and adding CO2 to it may have had a small influence on a temperature increase, but that influence is now largely, if not completely over. I might be wrong, but wasn't there a relationship between that um, hockey stick fraud and climate gate? Uh, I, I think climate gate brought out the emails that uh, promoted the hockey stick graph. And, and there's, there's a, a great video that is on uh, climate discussion nexus uh, that shows how the IPCC manipulated data to promote the hockey stick graph. Because there was, there was another uh, tree study that was done that used various um, species of trees, both in, in North America. And, and this study showed that taken on their own in isolation, tree ring data is unreliable because not only are tree growth rings susceptible to temperature, they're susceptible to things like droughts and, and uh, uh, fertilization by carbon dioxide and, and other things. Mm. You're standing on the battleground of the information war and you're looking out at the horizon, what is it that you see? I see that the economic hardships that are caused by the green energy attempts and not only economic hardships, um, but the war between or the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I believe was facilitated by Europe's dependence on fossil fuels from Russia. And that dependence grew because their green energy, the solar and the wind failed. And that's caused tremendous economic hardship in the European Union, it's facilitated a war in, um, uh, between Russia and Ukraine. I think that economic hardship is, gonna, is, is spreading around the world. And, and I know in South Africa, you, you have an energy crisis uh, right now with, with rolling blackouts. And I think people are, are going to finally 
ask themselves two questions. And, and, and I think this show helps that. And, and one of them, they're going to ask, is climate change really caused by humans and, and, uh, or not? And my answer would be is we, we had maybe a small, uh, a, a small effect on it, but it's, it's largely natural and no, we can't control it. And the second question they're going to ask is climate change catastrophic? And absolutely not, because with much less technology and much more primitive times, we adapted to these types of temperature changes before. So that's what I see on the horizon. And, and it's unfortunately that it, it's, it's going to take the failure of all these green initiatives uh, and all the money that was wasted on them and all the pain and suffering that they've caused for people to come to the conclusion that let's get back to the basics. Um, is CO2 really causing all the damage that the IPCC says it's causing? That's what I see. If I wanted to follow your information war, where can I go? Well, you can go to www.ronaldbarnby.ca and uh, you'll see that there's uh, a couple dozen articles that I've I've written and uh, radio views ra radio interviews that I've done that are posted on there, and you can also uh, access a copy of my book, and my book is called uh, Sunlight on Climate Change: A Heretic's Guide to Global Climate Hysteria. And the purpose of the book is to explain in in uh, uh, in understandable terms. The science of climate change just like you and I are talking so, so the, 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 that's the purpose of the book is for people that are interested in the subject but can't really dig into a PhD thesis on climate change mm. Ron Bombi I think that was fantastic thank you for joining me in the trenches thank you so much Jeremy my name is Germ this is Germ Warfare the battle of ideas If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.